Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a last time I'm going to be in the lead. The Giants won the pass. Lepina, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode four of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. The trumpet was the main interest my dad and I had in common when it came to music. He played this trumpet in high school. I played this trumpet in high school and college. In fact, I still play it every year in my high school alumni marching band. That's why the lyre is still on there. So it's only natural for him to have tons of trumpet players in his music collection. In this episode, I will introduce the first of many trumpet players included in this collection. So, time now for Volume 4, Harry James' Greatest Hits. Chitty Beady Bean, arranged by Harry James and recorded April 6, 1936. Now, 
he arranged that to be his theme song because all good band leaders of the day needed to have a theme song to open up their radio shows and their concerts. And that's exactly what Harry did for that after he had done some arranging of that same song with the Benny Goodman band. Now, let's pause a second, though. Let's talk about the pronunciation of that song. Um, Because my girlfriend and I, we kind of argued back and forth about what it should be and what it should sound like. So we went to the internet, and the American pronunciation is Sirai Birai Bean. And the Italian pronunciation is Chiri Bidi Bean. You need to have that hard R in there. Well, let's look up what it actually was. Chitty Bitty Bean is a merry ballad originally composed in three-quarter time by Alberto Pestalozza in 1898 with lyrics by Carlo Tioche. I think we know that the Italian pronunciation won out in that argument. So why did I pick this album? Well, there were a lot more popular trumpet players back in the day, but very few were as instantly recognizable as Harry James and his style of playing. But there is another reason. It has one of the earliest recordings of one of my dad's all-time favorite singers, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him later in the episode. As I said in the opening, trumpet players were a real connection for my father and me. We saw several concerts featuring trumpet players together, Doc Severinsen, Herb Albert, and the Tijuana Brass, Chuck Mangione. However, with all the times that I saw Maynard Ferguson, I only saw him once with my dad. It was the show at Perry High School in 1984, where I got to introduce the legend on stage, met him backstage. Um, the radio station I was working for had sponsored that show. I ended up seeing Maynard Ferguson 10 times in concert. So believe me, we'll be hearing plenty of trumpet music during the course of the show. I mean, you already hear my dad's favorite trumpet player playing his favorite song in the intro and outro of this show. So let's get back to music with a very familiar melody. Thank you. 
I've heard that song before The lyric said Forevermore Forevermore The memory Song Before, vocals by Helen Forrest. That was written by Sammy Kahn and Jewel Stein. You'll hear another another arrangement from them a little bit later. That was recorded July 31st, 1942. Okay, let's talk about the album itself that I picked for today. Harry James is the artist. Harry James, Greatest Hits, is the name of the album. It's on the Columbia label, uh, number CS9430. This is a reissue, which was released in 1970. The music recorded on it was recorded between 1939 and 1946. Looking at the Discogs value, the lowest prices uh, I saw in there were $2.00. The median was seven, and the highest was nineteen. eBay had a copy on there for five fifty, and as usual, Amazon coming in way high at a one valued at fifty dollars. Um, I'm going to value my dad's only at two dollars. Really hissy, marked up uh, album cover. I mean, it's the typical in his collection. He was, you know, he wasn't the best at keeping them um, perfect condition like some people are. So, like I said, I'm going to value it at $2. Let's uh, read some liner notes here from Jeff Scott. One of the most inspired talents ever to enhance the original Benny Goodman band was Harry James. After Bunny Berrigan left Goodman's brass section to head up his own orchestra in 1936, the vacant first chair was filled to perfection by the slim, then 21-year-old Texan. James quickly demonstrated his inventive aptitude. He added a clear-cut drive never before heard in a band of that era. His solos were energetically live. While Harry seemed at times to threaten the plaster on many ballroom ceilings with his powerhouse solos, nevertheless, his tone and technique were impeccable. During the next two years, the Goodman Band rose to an undreamed-of pinnacle of success. Records, radio, and Hollywood opened up as never before to the swing bands. In 1938, another musical landmark was achieved when Goodman brought Swing's first concert to Carnegie Hall. It has been said this was the finest band, supporting evidence is documented in the King of Swing Carnegie Hall Jazz Concert. All-time swing classics such as Sing 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 and One O'Clock Jump were immortalized due to the electrifying contributions of Gene Krupa and Harry James. These inflammatory house rockers, or killer dillers, served as a recognitional springboard for the eventual goal of every ambition sideman fronting his own band. 
By the end of 1938, Krupa had taken this route. The following year, James decided he wanted his own orchestra. With Goodman's blessing, plus a Columbia recording contract, Harry set forth and achieved instantaneous success. This album, Harry James' Greatest Hits, contains just that. It's a collector's choice of timeless ballads and instrumentals. All sold over a million copies. The new listener may be surprised to find that, although Harry was mainly known for his high-powered work on Goodman's jumping instrumentals, the most favorable reception with his own band during the period covered by these tracks was given his torch ballads. This early James aggregation was staffed with five brass, four saxes, and a four-man rhythm section. A string section was added later. Okay, now let's hear from another female vocalist for James. Just how empty they all seem without you 
It's been a long, long time with vocals by Kitty Callen, was written by Sammy Kahn and Jewel Stein, and that was recorded July 24th, 1945. Okay, let's talk about today's artist. I found a great article on syncopatedtimes.com. Next to Louis Armstrong, Harry James was not only the most famous trumpeter of the 1940s, but remains a household name decades after his death. A brilliant virtuoso who in his prime had only a handful of equals. He was born March 15, 1916 in Albany, Georgia, the son of a father... Everett Robert James, who conducted bands for traveling circuses. His mother, Myrtle Maybell, was an acrobat and horseback rider. James, who worked as a contortionist from the age of four in the circus, started playing drums when he was seven, he always enjoyed sitting behind a drum set, and began on the trumpet the following year. James took to the trumpet quickly. By the time he was 12, he was leading one of the ensembles for the Christie Brothers Circus. The circus training resulted in Harry James gaining strong endurance, a powerful melodic style, and versatility. During 1931-35, to starting when he was 15, he worked with a variety of territory bands based in Texas, becoming influenced by Louis Armstrong, always one of his heroes, and developing a swinging style that best displayed his wide range, use of dynamics, and ability to build up a solo to a passionate level. James' first early break was when drummer Ben Pollock heard him play and asked him to join his band in 1935. The trumpeter stayed almost two years and made his recording debut in 1936, appearing on 12 numbers and already sounding like himself on Song of the Island, spreading knowledge around, and his own song, Peckin'. Pollock was already becoming famous for discovering talent that was soon stolen by other band leaders. When Benny Goodman, who had the number one swing band, offered James a job at the beginning of 1937, when he was still just 18, there was no way that the trumpeter would be turning him down. James joined Ziggy Elman and Chris Griffin as part of one of the great trumpet sections. Each of the trumpeters took turns playing lead with James soon overshadowing Elman as the main soloist. Goodman's band with Gene Krupa was at its height, leading the way in the crowded swing world. James, with his beautiful tone and exciting style, was a hit from the start, uplifting the orchestra on such numbers as Down South Camp Meeting, Sing Sing Sing, One O'Clock Jump, St. Louis Blues, and others. He was part of Benny Goodman's famed Carnegie Hall concert on January 12, 1938, and appeared in the Hollywood Hotel film with Goodman playing Sing Sing Sing, a song he grew to dislike, rarely ever performing it with his own orchestra. In January 1939, Harry James went out on his own, putting together his own big band. He first recorded four dazzling numbers, Boo Woo, Woo Woo, Home James, and Jesse, in boogie-woogie trios featuring either Pete Johnson or Albert Amans, and then had his first big band date, de- debuting his theme song, Chiri Biri Bin. Other than altoist arranger Dave Matthews, no, not the one you're thinking of, there were no notable names in his first big band. For a few months, James' band featured the young Frank Sinatra, but the singer's only hit with the band All or Nothing at All did not sell that well until it was reissued several years later. In 1943, James married American actress, pinup girl, dancer, model, and singer Betty Grable. When Harry met Betty, they were set to make beautiful music the nation's favorite musical star, and the man with the golden trumpet. It was a marriage made in Hollywood heaven. 
Betty and Harry were show business royalty illuminated by the sheen of success, but their golden lives were wrecked by Harry's drinking, womanizing, and gambling. Theirs was a Hollywood fairy tale with a cautionary ending, and that ending came in 1965. That last little bit was from the AlexanderStreet.com. By the way, Harry and Betty did have two daughters. Okay, now let's take a listen to that song that didn't do so well the first time it was released. Nothing at all with vocals by Frank Sinatra. That was recorded September 17, 1939, and was written by Arthur Altman and Jack Lawrence. Okay, here's this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with that now famous singer. James Band was the first high-profile orchestra to feature vocalist Frank Sinatra, who signed a one-year, $75-a-week contract in 1939. James wanted to change Sinatra's name to Frankie Satin, but the singer refused. 
Frank Sinatra grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, under the protective gaze of his mother Molly. A hard-nosed woman, Molly's political clout in the area would help secure the young Frank his first professional gig, a spot in the local singing group, The Three Flashes, which now had to be renamed The Hoboken Four with the addition of Teenage Frankie. With the rail-thin, blue-eyed heartthrob now singing lead, the Hoboken Four found success on Major Bo's Amateur Hour radio program and later on Bo's Traveling Circuit. But even then, Sinatra knew he was destined for better things. Determined, Sinatra soon landed a job as a singing waiter in the Rustic Cabin, a club in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. The cabin possessed a special feature, a direct line to WNEW, a local radio station that would broadcast their performances. It was on one of these broadcasts where he was first heard by the young trumpeter and bandleader, Harry James. James knew right away that he wanted Frank in his band. Sinatra's voice was still thin and tender at the time, but with his Italian heritage and lingering Hoboken accent, it was considered a bit exotic, at least compared to the all-American sound of Sinatra's idol, Bing Crosby. Sinatra recorded 10 songs with Harry James Orchestra before, before moving on to bigger and better things, but one of those songs, All or Nothing at All, stood out among the rest and would prove to be Sinatra's first big hit in 1939. It would become a hit again in 1942 when Columbia Records re-released it during the recording ban. Sinatra was snatched seven months later by Tommy Dorsey. Okay, next up is a version of a song that has no singing to it, but I bet you know the lyrics.
You Made Me Love You, written by James Monaco and Joseph McCarthy, recorded May 20th, 1941. Well, this was another enjoyable episode of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Not only because I pulled out the first of many trumpet players you are going to hear, but also we got to hear one of the very first recordings of a singer that became so important in my dad's life. But before we get out of here, let's hear that old Count Basie tune, James Turn, The Clock Ahead On. Based on Count Basie's 1 o'clock jump but using triplets, that's 2 o'clock jump with writing credits given to Benny Goodman, Count Basie, and Harry James, and that was recorded on February 20th, 1939. 
Okay, chitty beady bean. Thank you very much for tuning into Volume 4, Harry James' Greatest Hits. If you've got any questions about this podcast, please head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 5, Golden Memories of Radio, Part 1. Go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>